HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers. Shift your business and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash snacky. This week on Meet and 3, we're turning our attention to how the global pandemic is impacting our mental health and how food brings us comfort during these times. I've never understood why people have said I'm brave for solo dining. Food can kind of be a source of solace or it can be a source of excitement or like an activity to, to keep you busy. When there's a crisis, typically the restaurant industry is one of the industries that springs into action in terms of being like, well, come in, we'll take care of you. Tune in to Meet and 3 to learn more about the psychological effects of COVID-19. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Besnitz. For our ongoing coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, we head to South Carolina, where we meet up with Chef Kevin Mitchell, who is the chef instructor at the Culinary Institute of Charleston. He is a man of many talents and titles, including culinary historian and the South Carolina Chef Ambassador for 2020. Kevin is a strong proponent for the preservation of Southern ingredients and is widely known for his expertise on the historical importance and influence of African-American cuisine. We explore his career as a chef and educator, and he also provides us some historical insights into the African-American culinary experience. Later in the episode, we are joined by songwriter and hip-hop artist Jimmy Jolliffe, a.k.a. Champion Chills, who shares some of his latest tracks with us. We also dive into the importance of interracial allyship, leveraging privilege to provide opportunity, and most importantly, keeping our ears and hearts open for discussion and education. Thank you for tuning in. Sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. Champ. Help written by Zigzag Ziggler. You know I'm a monster. I've been been a minotaur. Roll up to your concert, leave everybody in the dark. Go home, get physical. Pat Benatar. Pull up to the land where the marijuana in the jar. Bump it like a prayer, make a player wanna end the star. How's I love Kate Bush blaring out speakers? Can't believe I got it off of saying shit in t-shirts. Never was a tight to have affairs on my teachers. Rolling with Virginia on a dead behind the bleachers. God bless Mama them. God bless Kaepernick. God bless everything I learned from this rapping shit. Rap John Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Living where the traffic is. What year Mac is this? Acura and that sex and then sex is not the only meaning of life but 
If we gotta get by with just that, then tonight gonna be alright. Alright. Quentin Tarantino in a whole city feels like a very big casino. Who am I? Who am I? I'ma do or die. Even if the uniform is a suit and tie. Stay tuned in, there's more to watch. I wouldn't trade you for a sports car or a watch. A mortal man and I always fall short of plans. But I swear at your wedding, I'll be sure to dance. Now, can I get a show of hands? Whoever fell in love to a slow jam. I'm okay to be alone, but I'd rather have me and you in the Aaliyah song. Than the radio DJ straight into a singer song. And it really brought the feelings home. Yeah, this young love, Bob Marley mentality, one love. Hard worker, never trying to be the runner-up. But I don't care who wins if it's one of us. I mean that, each and every one of us. Don't know why you want to call me when you want to fuss. I would never throw you under the bus. I'm not trying to do damage to a valuable trust. Not trying to do much, but be kind of just. Get on eye level, vibe with us, yeah. If time is money, think about time too much and your mind get funny. On the topic of minds, I think I might have lost minds. Maybe you can find it for me, I said. If time is money, think about time too much and your mind get funny. On the topic of minds, I think I might have lost minds. Maybe you can find it for me. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On our continuing coverage of the corona pandemic and its effect on the culinary in- industry, we are speaking with Chef Kevin Mitchell of the Culinary Institute of Charleston, among many, many other things. Chef, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, if we were to cover everything you have done in your career, we would need a few hours. Uh, but I'm just going to run through it so people have an understanding of it, and I'm going to try to do this in, in one go. Kevin okay. E. Mitchell, C-E-C-C-F-S-E-M-A, culinary historian, chef instructor, culinary institution of Institute of Charleston, national board member, Slow Food, member of the Foodway Alliance, board member, Bread and Butter Charleston, South Carolina Chef Ambassador 2020-21, member Culinary Institute of American Diversity Board, Member Cooks Alliance Slow Food USA. Did I miss anything? No, I think you got it all. <laughs> okay. Um, you are probably 215 years old. Am I right? Oh, sometimes I feel like it. <laughs> Definitely feel like it. Uh, I, I, we're going to cover um, a wide swath of what you've done because even uh, with, with those accolades, that's actually just 
kind of touching the, the surface. Um, but I want to go back to your grandmother's kitchen where you got started, um, picking greens, cleaning collards, kale, and spinach. I would love to know what lessons you learned in the kitchen that you have carried through your entire culinary career. Well, definitely one of the main lessons, specifically from being in the kitchen with my grandmother, you know, that food is probably the one thing that brings everyone together. Um, everyone has to eat. Um, everyone sits down at a table to eat. And for me, it doesn't really matter what is on the table. We all have to sit down and eat and break bread and, and you know, and fellowship and converse and do all those things together. So that was the one thing that, you know, what I, throughout my entire career and anything that I do, you know, I always take that one specific thing from from her specifically um, with everything that I do. And I bring it into the classroom. I bring it into board meetings. I bring it into everything that I do. It's incredible. Um, and what was one of the examples that she showed you where it might have been an adverse situation or uh, a difficult situation where breaking bread and sitting down and your grandmother's ideals? smoothed it over and she paved the way for you? Um, I don't, I didn't, don't really think I, it didn't really come to the notion that that statement as far as food bringing people together as a negative connotation until probably later on in my career. Um, when, um, I mean, just basically based through, um, my career and, and being passed over for, you know, chef positions based on my race. Um, but really getting to the point where I went off to um, the University of Mississippi and was getting my graduate degree in, in Southern studies and focusing in on Southern foodways and the revitalization of Southern ingredients and also, you know, like the history of African-Americans and cooking is where I really started to, to look at it as, you know, this kind of double-edged sword. Yes, food is that one thing that brings us together, but in some instances it was that one thing that kept us, kept us apart. And if I think about um, John Edgerton, who was the, one of the original founders of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and he makes a statement in one of his books where it talks about, and I'll just we'll paraphrase, talks about how, Blacks and whites were always hand in hand and together as it related to the process of growing food, picking food, cooking food. But when it came to sit down at the table, we all had to sit at separate tables. So just kind of understanding more about the South as it related to food and, as of course, as it relates to slavery and so on, that that was kind of when I started to see that, hey, you know, in some instances, food doesn't always necessarily bring us together. But, you know, my grandmother, for me, those words will always ring true no matter what I do. And in the work that I do, I really try to bring in um, positive or positivity into into what we do. And that also extends from, you know, the stories and the research that I do and that I tell about formerly enslaved cooks who, in my eyes, 
really truly persevered through their condition and being able to come from that condition of being a slave to some of the better or some of the best black chefs and black caterers who go on in the city of Charleston and, you know, going back to the 1800s who go on to become the great chefs. So those are, those are kind of the, the lessons that I've learned and that I bring into my food every day. Your um, education in University of Mississippi, um, you have a, a number of degrees, but you also have a lot of outside of the classroom education. And I think one of the things that we've always seen on this show is the debate of professional culinary training versus the people that just go and get a dishwasher job and work their ranks up. It's kind of a living embodiment of the dichotomy of the two. And also being a professor yourself, where do you find the merits uh, on both sides? And, and where do you think that one um, favors the other and, and what you need to get from both? in order to be a, an excellent chef? Well, I mean, I think, I think exactly me kind of bridging both sides of the, of the fence is, is, is very important to me. Um, as an educator, as an instructor, you know, I'm always erring on the side of, you know, especially when I deal with my students or those potential students who want to come to culinary school and tell them that, you know, you're, traditional classical education is always important. Um, having that, what we call that paper, that piece of paper, that degree, that certificate that shows that you went through some formal training is always beneficial. Uh, of course, on the other side, we know that some of the best chefs alive and dead um, never step foot into a culinary school. So um, it, it's it's kind of a, you know, a really shaky kind of fence to stand on because I do epitomize both and I do appreciate both avenues. Um, but I also think that, you know, you should, um, I don't think I'm more on doing them both, like getting that formal training, going to a culinary school, and understanding, you know, the business of being a chef and understanding like that, the formality of coming to a class. And I, cause I think coming to school, going to class on time, turning in assignments helps you to become a, a really great chef. Uh, but also, I also do understand that going <clears throat> and working traditionally and going through the school of hard knocks that you're going to get that training as well if you are working with a good chef and if you're working with a good chef that is unselfish, you're going to get kind of the best of both worlds. And I've worked with both chefs. I've worked with chefs who, who gave me all of them, all of their souls and their beings to make sure that I was going to become a really great chef. I also worked with chefs who, who pretty much did not want to give anything because I, I, I think they felt as if, you know, I would, go on and surpass them. And in my, my own personal life, being an instructor, I want my students to surpass me. If, if for me, if my students don't go out and do better than what I have, then I feel as if I haven't done my job. Uh, speaking of students, um, you, you've held many jobs in your 
career, but the one that I would love to hear some war stories and some uh, tall tales from uh, is when you were the executive chef um, of one of the dining operations over at Cornell, and you hosted a, a number of events, uh, the Chinese New Year, Year of the Snake, and their um, traditional festival of Black Gospel. What was it like cooking for students? Um, what are some tricks, uh, and what is one good horror story from that experience? Um, <laughs> cooking for students can be, I mean, definitely rewarding, but it also has its challenges because, of course, you know, teaching at a you know a university such as Cornell, you you're getting students from not only all over the country, but you're getting students from all over the world who who eat differently, who have different palates, who um, see things very differently through the eyes of food. So, um, once again, rewarding and challenging, but also, you know, sitting, you know, I found it really beneficial to walk through the dining room and sit with students and, and talk to them about their relationships with food and, you know, what did their moms or their, you know, what their families cooked, how did they eat at home? What are their favorite foods? You know, how do they like things prepared? And I think it was truly a beneficial thing for me because I was able to, to understand, um, you know, the best way to get them into our dining room to sit down and, and, and eat a meal. And also just looking at eating that meal that wasn't always the traditional. Well, you know, of course, as a college student, you know, eating hot dogs and burgers and pizza and, and ramen noodles and so on. And, and I did those things too, as a college student as well. But, um, you know, just really getting to know them and getting to know their relationship with food and then just kind of ask them like, Hey, what do you, what do you guys like? You know? And, you know, and of course, going back to catering to students from, from different countries, of course, you know, you want to be able to, um, satisfy them with foods from their homes. So for me and in, in the, the dining room in which I ran, you know, we would run a, we ran, we actually turned our menu into a, excuse me, kind of an international feast where, you know, we would create, create these cycle menus and they were all based on international cuisine. And it was all, you know, and, and to kind of dress it up and make the students feel at home, we, I purchased, you know, flags from like 80 or 90 or so different countries. And we hung the flags up throughout the dining room. And, you know, one, one day a week we would feature, in one of our areas in the dining room, we would feature nothing but Indian cuisine to, uh, you know, to appeal to our students who are Indian. And of course, um, for Indians, you know, a lot of times they're they're either heavily vegan or vegetarian. So, understanding and offering those particular items for them to eat, and but still understanding that, no, I'm not from India, but you know. For me, I feel like if you understand the ingredients and the spices and the culture of of any country, you can cook anything. Is is it going to be authentic? Well, people are not going to look at it as being authentic because here I am, this this black chef who's making tikka masala and all these other other things. But you know, just really trying to extend myself and let those students know that I was, you know, that I understand that they're far from home and having the food of their home is comforting to them. So, you know, of course we would African, Italian, 
you know, Czechoslovakian, you know, just a lot of research on different types of dishes. And of course, including those students in those, in those conversations about, you know, writing those menus. Um, no, not, not necessarily really any, any horror stories, um, teaching or, or cooking for students. Um, you know, it just, it was just very rewarding. And once again, challenging to, you know, because you can't, you can't cook for everybody. You can't cook every meal for every person from every different country. You know, Africa has so many different countries in it. And of course, you know, there's so many different types of Indian food and there's Northern Indian. And, you know, some people in India don't eat, do eat beef. Some people don't eat beef. Some people eat. So, you know, just really understanding those things and just really trying to extend and let them know that, Hey, I'm really trying to, offer something that can be comforting for, to you when you're far away from your homeland. Of understanding where you're coming from through culinary experiences and also touching on what your grandmother taught you really shines in your bridging culinary awareness group that you founded. Can you talk about the mm-hmm. work that you did there, um, how it's evolved um, and, and, and touch on, some of the dinners that you've done and uh, including the diversity dinner for Charleston wine and food and, and also the nut filler feast that you did in 2015. Okay. Well, the bridging uh, culinary awareness organization was um, an extension of an organization that I was in as a student at the culinary Institute of America, which was kind of like the minority cultural society. Um, and it was started by, a group of alumni um, who, who of course graduated from CIA and felt like we needed to move on and, and, and create this organization to, to publicly um, acknowledge the achievements and the accomplishments of African-American chefs um, initially, um, and that was kind of our first initial mission was to focus in on African American chefs. And then, of course, you know, as we grow and as we grew, we started to look more at um, at it as as a, on a more diversified front, and started looking at you know the the Latin or Latin chefs or Asian chefs, um, even chefs who you know come. F- or who come from Africa because they're so different. African-American and African, you know, are, can be two very different things. So that was the main reason to, to kind of, you know, develop and, and come up with this, this organization. So people knew that the contributions to food comes from everywhere. It comes from African-Americans, it comes from Italians, it comes from, you know, Africans, it comes from Spanish-speaking people, so on and so forth. Um, and being a part of that was was very rewarding to me because I was able to, of course, meet a whole different group of chefs and, and learn more about the different types of food and, and working with, you know, Asian chefs. Um, and it's really understanding that at the end of the day, once again, it's, it's food. Like we're, we're not, you know, we're not, you know, we're not doing brain surgery and saving the world in a sense. It's food. And we all stand on an equal, equal plane as it relates to food and understanding once again, 
the ingredients, the culture, and how they're used. Because, you know, you in Asia, you can use, you use ginger in one way, but in Africa, you use ginger, and you can use it in the same way, or you can use it very differently. Um, so that was kind of, you know, what the BCA was all about, and moving into, you know, so once again, starting off with specifically African-American, and then, of course, looking at diversity, so on and so forth, and then you know, throughout my career, for me, I would say my biggest dinner and the dinner that changed the direction of my career and the path would have been that Nat Fuller dinner. And Nat Fuller um, was a former slave born and raised in Charleston, uh, purchased by a gentleman named William C. Gatewood, who originally moved to Charleston from the north, and he purchased Nat at the age of 15 uh, to be his manservant. Um, you know, William C. Gaywood was, of course, not your traditional southerner. He wasn't from the south, so he wasn't into, you know, uh, you know, plantations or, you know, it was all about picking cotton and so on and so forth. For him, he was uh, – he, he entertained and he wanted someone, of course, that could cook. And Nat became his manservant and prepared meals at the William C. Gatewood house um, that actually still stands um, in, the, in, in the city today. And his story, he goes on to open a restaurant in Charleston with the help of William C. Gatewood um, by him actually bankrolling the con, you know, his restaurant for Nat and allowing him his freedom. And when through, throughout slavery, slaves were, you know, were given their freedom if they were entered into these kind of work agreements where they would actually pay for their, you know, for their freedom. Um, Nat opens up the <clears throat> bachelor's retreat restaurant in, in the city of Charleston. And that building still stands today. It is an art gallery now. And he opens up this restaurant, and that becomes one of the great or the greatest black caterer in the city of Charleston in the 1800s. And his major claim to fame was holding a miscegenation or a mixed-race dinner shortly after the end of the Civil War. And he had, had this dinner because he wanted to have this dinner to, of course, celebrate the end of the Civil War, celebrate equality and also celebrate the spirit of reconciliation and through some research and working with um, Dr. David Shields, who's a professor at the university of South Carolina, he brings the story of Nat Fuller to me and he comes up with the, you know, the, this marvelous idea of, Hey, let's recreate this dinner that he had in 1865 and let's do it exactly as much as we can to the way it was done in 1865. So from 2014 through 2015, he and I and a host of others basically sat down and planned the dinner. And, and he actually asked if I would stand in the shoes of Nat Fuller and actually, you know, be the chef and prepare this meal. So we did some research. Uh, unfortunately, we were not able to find the original menu 
from his original dinner. So what I was able to do was pull menus from his catering events, from his competitors, from some of his predecessors, and piecemeal a menu that I thought he would have served at his dinner. And then, of course, we served it. It truths the style of how food was served <laughs> Excuse me. in that period of being served Russian style where food is presented elaborately on platters and the, the food is actually brought to you on platters and then servers actually place items of food on your plate along with the sauce and the garnish. And um, so in April, or April 19th, you know, we celebrate his legacy by recreating this dinner. And actually this past Sunday was the five-year anniversary of our Nat Fuller's Feast. And that, for me, <clears throat> was the catalyst that put me on the path to 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 me becoming a culinary historian and and really doing more research on not only him but people that came from him his lineage of chefs and cooks that he trained who took over the reins of being great black caterers here in the city of Charleston incredible um we're going to take a quick musical break play a song from our archives and we're back here with chef kevin mitchell and on snacky tunes on heritage radio network Yay! Awesome. let's do it kids thank you Check it. Oh, oh, okay. Wake up in the morning to the clear blue sky. Turn up the music when I hop in the ride. The windows down, let the whole world see. Can't nobody rock it like little old me. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I got my chunks and my dickies and I put it on black. Banging Sinatra in the black Cadillac. My old lady hanging out the whole window. Everybody looking when we walking slow. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. Come on. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Everybody singing now. Okay, now one for the money and a two for the show. But three to be a legend even if I'm po. I ain't chasing nothing, you gon' have to catch me. And if you wanna taste, you gon' have to pay the fee. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. Two on my molly ring walls and my little scarecrows. Where they hear my racket, where they all hit the flow. Ladies rock a pose, come up in the front row. The homies in the back tip the hats real low. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. I'm the bomb in about to blow up. Come on. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Whoa. Yeah. Everybody singing now. Whoa. Everybody singing now. Come on. Let's go. Whoa. Come on, everybody, won't you clap your hands? White folks, do it on time if you can. 
Sounds good, now here's the plan Let's all sing together like we in the same band I'm the bomb and about to blow up Ooh. I'm the bomb and about to blow up oh my God. I'm the bomb and about to blow up Ooh. And the bomb, oh my God. Okay, now we about to take it on a whole new level Grabbing the light on the run from the devil Been downtown for too long I feel the sun rising all up in my bones I'm the bomb and about to blow up I'm the bomb and about to blow up Whoa, whoa, whoa Has to doodle now. She told me earlier she has to poo poo now. So, Chef, I believe more than anything, um, you're a, uh, a teacher. You're the chef instructor at the Culinary Institute of Charleston, uh, where you were the first African American instructor. And I'm curious to know how you are adjusting to COVID 19 and your commitment to educating your students and remote teaching. Uh, wow. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely been a challenge. Um, of course, when you're used to being in a classroom where everything is done hands-on for, well, at least a good 90 to 95% of the work you do is, is hands-on. It has been a challenge to pivot to, um, <clears throat> completely go online. Um, and the instructors and myself, have become very creative in creating assignments that still allow students to do some physical cooking, some physical activity. Uh, we create videos which we send to the students. So if, you know, for say a specific class, I may be teaching them on knife skills. So I may create a video or, you know, there are some really great YouTube videos that, that do that as well, but I may create a video of me, going through the process of specific knife skills with the students. I send them the video and then I direct them to do exactly what I did in the video for them to make a video and then for them to upload it and send it to me for me to grade. Um, the only challenge with, with some of that is of course, when we actually start cooking food, because of course I can't taste it, <laughs> but at least through videos and you know through other technology such as Zoom, we use Zoom a lot where we all get on together, and I have them on screen. They can see me, you know, creating a dish. I can also see them doing the dish themselves, and and then of course I have the opportunity to take questions at you know at that moment. And then being able to just kind of grade them to make sure that at least they have the proper technique um, that they are understanding, you know, when something is cooked or undercooked, um, you know. And then, of course, 
uh, most of our classes, we, we also, we've done, we, we do our classes in mixed mode anyway. So a lot of the lecture material, PowerPoints, anything else like that is already online for them. So the idea is for them to view those things prior to coming to the class. And then when they come to class, at least they have a general knowledge of what is going to happen for the day. Um, so if they know that, okay, today we're going to talk about emulsions and we're going to make mayonnaise and we're going to make hollandaise and we're going to make a classic vinaigrette, they would have read all the in information. They come to class. I do do a quick briefing of the lecture material, making sure that they're ready to learn. And then, of course, we go through the process. But, of course, in in the age of COVID, it's not like that. So, basically, it's, once again, it's videos going back and forth. It's WebEx. It's Zoom. Um, and, you know, for me, it's email. And, of course, you know, the, the power of the almighty phone, you know, I text my students every morning letting them know, you know, when assignments are due and we, we do, we have some open communication. So, you know, and there's, there are culinary schools that are strictly online 100% of the time. So, you know, it definitely can be done. And then what I also do is, you know, I have friends who teach at other culinary schools and we sit on the phone and we, you know, we talk about best practices and we, say, okay, well, how do you handle this particular problem in your class? So, you know, it's just <clears throat> the only challenge or one of the challenges for me is that I just miss that physical interaction and miss, you know, that gleam in their eye when they, when they get something right, when they finally understand a technique or a process or when I taste their food and I say it, it's good. I, that's the one part I really miss about, you know, having to pivot to, you know, doing everything from home. Being able to taste their food um, and the interaction you just discussed, what is one of the more surprising challenges about transferring culinary education to online? Um, I thought something that actually is, is pretty good. I thought the, the challenge would be students um, or the challenge would be that students would really prefer the online model. But I, I see that students, a lot of my students really want the physical interaction. So the challenge has been to get them to understand that at this particular moment in our lives, that this is the only way we can ensure that you're going to get a quality education. So you do, you have to embrace what it is that we're doing. And for me, you know, we, we students, the age ranges are from, you know, the, I, the youngest student I have can be 18 and the oldest can be 65 to 70. Um, and it's the older students who necessarily don't know how to embrace the technology and don't understand, you know, I have students who, who still don't understand how to text or how to, how to cut and paste or, download a file and attach it to an email. <laughs> so the challenge has been kind of like getting them to, to embrace the technology so I can properly grade them. You know, chef, I don't, you know, it's I, trying and also teaching them how to 
you know, how to be professional and, and turn in professionally written assignments. You know, their idea is, well, we're just here to learn how to cook. Uh, and my thing is like, well, no, well, yes, you're right. But no, as so also as a chef, you need to know how to communicate. And that's in both oral and written communication. So, you know, that's been a challenge for me because I do have um, several classes with older students who, who, who have yet to kind of, really figure out the technology part. Excuse me, but in it, so it takes, it takes a little bit more time. It's a little bit more hand holding for me, for them to get them to turn that stuff in. But, you know, you know, and I haven't really seen any major issues. I mean, I've had some students drop classes because in their eyes, well, Hey, I didn't sign up for an online class. I signed up for a lab, but once again, it's me calling them and getting to understand that, you know, this is the world that we live in, and, you know, this is not only for my safety and my health, but it's for your safety and your health as well. The other thing about being an instructor is I think that you're also a moral, not moral support, um, a confidant, um, prep people up when they're questioning decisions because they look at an instructor who's so experienced and has so much um, diversity and scope of what they've done, and they're just starting out, um, or they've chosen a new path, and some of your older students, what are some of the questions that you're answering for them when they're looking at the landscape and the effects that coronavirus has had on the restaurant industry, and then feeling that there may or may not be work for them? What type of reassurances do you give them, if you can give them any reassurance, or, or how are you navigating that tricky water? Yeah, that's definitely a very uh, tricky thing. Because, you know, I do and I have had students who have, you know, come to me and said, you know, based on the world we live in and COVID at this point, that they're really, you know, reconsidering their their choice of career <clears throat> because they understand and they're starting to see that for this specific instance, how vulnerable the food service industry is. I mean, it, we... We're an industry of full contact. You know, we touch food. We we are con- in contact with the guests. We're in close knit places, specifically chick, um, kick, sorry, kitchens. Um, so I pretty much <clears throat> try to reassure them that you know things are um, not great right now, but eventually, you know, we're gonna you know we're gonna combat this thing and we're gonna get back to to normal. And I mean, it's not, and I also, and I'm not pie in the sky. I do believe that, um, our definition of normal is going to change once we are allowed to go back to dining, public dining and being in kitchens and being in restaurants. So I know things are going to change, but also reassure them that this is still the very, you know, viable and great career to be in, you know, you know, it's a, it's a career that is never going to die, really. I mean, everyone has to eat. And there's always going to be someone who doesn't know how to cook, for instance, who is going to want someone else to cook for them. Um, so there's, you know, there's, of course, being a chef in a restaurant. There's being a private chef. There's all kinds of other other avenues for the students to to take. But just really just kind of reassuring them that, hey, you know, we're going to we're going to beat this and things are going to get back to some type of normalcy soon. And, you know, this is a great profession to be in. 
This is something that, you know, you can do to, to make people happy. You know, cooking for someone is one of the truest forms of, of displaying for me, displaying love. Like when you put yourself in the kitchen to prepare a meal for your family, your loved ones, so on and so forth, that's a, that's a real sign of love for me. And, who wouldn't want to have that feeling of making, <laughs> excuse me, making someone happy by putting something on a plate in front of them? Um, and I'm also, you know, very realistic, and you know, I also understand that the students are going to make decisions based on their lives and based on what they feel they that they really want. So either way, I'm very encouraging encouraging them to stay in the industry, but also. You know, if, if if they want to if they want to pursue other avenues, I still offer myself as a means of being able to help them find those paths and find people that they can talk to that may be in a totally different industry and still letting them know that I support whatever it is that they choose to do. One of the other hats that you wear is that you are the South Carolina chef ambassador. Um for this year and next, uh, which is a role that is appointed by the governor of South Carolina. How are you adjusting in these times, uh, understanding that travel might be restricted uh, or changed, and, and what are you doing to adjust your strategy to continue to promote South Carolina to the nation and to the world? Well, definitely pivoting everything to social media. Um, you know, there are for the year there's four of us and we do have um people that we work with and what we have been able to do is we just promote we're promoting south carolina food and ingredients through social media we're posting videos there we're supplying recipes um, based on using local south carolina produce or or south carolina products so, you know, we, we necessarily have not missed a beat in that sense. Now, we do hope that we can get back to some, some type of travel because it's, you know, it's a really cool thing to travel somewhere and, and do a, a dinner or do a demo and, you know, and have people there physically being able to see the products, taste the products um, one-on-one as we're there. But, you know, for the most part, once again, it's all been social media based. Uh, we all um, have our Instagram pages. We connect with one another through, through Instagram, of course, via text um, and also email. So we may get an email from one of the, our organizers and say, hey, you know, we want to continue promoting what you're doing. Um, send me a recipe that uses, you know, local South Carolina produce, and then we'll send the recipe, they'll attach it to a picture, and they'll post on Instagram, they'll post online, they'll post on Facebook and other other social media. So the word is still getting out about South Carolina products, so on and so forth. And uh, for me, I <clears throat> am extending that uh, by hopefully at the end of this year, beginning of next year I will I've written a book on with the also with the help of chef I'm sorry with 
Dr. David Shields from the University of South Carolina, we've written a book on South Carolina food and South Carolina ingredients that we hope will be out um, first quarter of next year. Uh, well, Chef Mitchell, thank you for speaking with us. Um, where can people find you, uh, follow you online, learn more about South Carolina products, uh, get a hold of you? Well, you can definitely follow me on my Instagram and Facebook, and both of those are called Chef Scholar, C-H-E-F-S-C-H-O-L-A-R, um, both on Facebook and, once again, on um, Instagram. You can also, you know, I'm definitely available by email, so if anyone wants to ever email me for a, a recipe or just wants to talk about food, they can email me, and it's all lowercase at Kevin dot Mitchell at Trident Tech. And that's T R I D E N T T E C H dot E D U. That's my you know my work email, and I definitely respond to email. And but the best way, the quickest way to really see what I'm doing is to definitely go to my Instagram and face, Facebook pages. Uh, well, thank you, Chef. Uh, we're going to play another song from the archives and then pull a live performance from the vault here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Square. 
We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's. But since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers, no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com go slash snacky. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Uh, we have Jimmy Jolliffe champion chills joining us jimmy as we're asking everybody during these times how are you uh i'm i'm honestly i'm doing well as they uh, you know i think there are a lot of people that are worse off than i am and i think they have the floor so i have have no complaints i'm trying as much as i can to stay engaged and listen to voices i trust and follow their direction and try to be as active as possible so Uh, As an artist during these times, what role do you feel art has to help navigate and help people understand? Um, I mean, I I think the role of artists in that way is somewhat fixed in that we always are meant to kind of parse and interpret or filter our experiences and turn that into something that might make might resonate with others others experiences um i think specifically for me and people kind of in my world or milieu uh especially white artists who operate in genres that were innovated and still kind of like run by black artists in terms of the creative energy and inspiration um which i would say is also all of all of the genres we might that might even come to mind. Yeah, basically, like, you know, 20th century harmony was redefined by Black artists and any genre since, you know, then is it shares in that debt to me, whether it's, you know, Willie Nelson records with jazz chords, you know, sure, they're country music, but like, I don't know. I think there are more, more similarities and more kind of of that that cultural indebtedness or, or sense of, you know, we'll just say borrow, borrowing freely um, sometimes in ways that are hostile and sometimes that are not. But I mean, for me, I'm kind of trying to just listen and talk to people I know, listen to people I know and learn and, and kind of assume I know nothing, be good at being wrong, be okay with being wrong, find out where, which of my assumptions are just my privilege. And, you know, I think um, as an artist, that's, it's a research time for me. It's not a talking time. It's not a time for like, 
I mean, you know, I make, I started off making rap music and I'm a white guy. Like it's not my time to, to you know, it's, it's listening time. Um, but that being said, I, I do, you don't want disengagement. I want to still continue to remain receptive and whatever the, the, the gate that where of experience that kind of comes in my way that I turn around later after contemplation or after things kind of simmer for a while and turn that into music. I want to keep the receptors on and all the way up. And, and in, in conversations, I want to be um, just a participant in terms of trying to facilitate other people's voices if I can, but ultimately it's just about getting out of the way and, you know, letting people speak. We first met, uh, when you were doing Brother Reed, you actually played at a party I did. Uh, it seems like a million lifetime ago. <laughs> at least um, one million. At, at least one million lifetimes ago. Um, when you laid down the Brother Reed persona and picked up Champion Chills, what did you feel that you could or could not articulate in your previous incarnation that your new incarnation could help you with? Or... What direction did you feel you need to go in to adopt a new persona? It was almost, well, Brother Reed wasn't really a persona as much as it was a collaboration. It was like, it was confusing because we're a group named after my actual Brother Reed. And, but there were two of us. It was Aaron Garcia, this like really powerful visual artist and also like one of my favorite record producers to this day. And I, and so like that was the group and I always have felt, even now, like I call my project my group because I, like fake names are hard for me. Like they sit weird on me, you know? Um, But the persona of that group was the persona of our times at that time. So we were kind of like very young kids living in like a punk house in LA, being just throwing all of our creative energy at the wall from sunup to sundown, just like every waking moment. And so Brother Reed kind of was the nexus of that for me, but it also like you saw those two people on stage, but behind them, there was like 20 kind of like wild punk kids who were like, you know, clogging up our bathroom with the screen printing operation and whatever, just, you know, those times were just extremely wild and fun and rebellious and exciting. I think in LA, the the energy in the air, it was an era that almost is like missed. It hasn't been named quite, but a lot of crazy stuff came out of then. So what was the, the, the air I was breathing for Brother Reed was different. It was way more charged. It was a lot less contemplative. It was, it was like party time, right? It'd be like footprints on the ceiling kind of energy. And then when I started Champion Shows, it was actually a response to, so I went from Brother Reed to basically doing a lot of work behind the scenes and uh, doing some like top line songwriting, what people will call like ghost writing for some artists. I got to work, I did some stuff for some pretty cool artists, but the people that I wound up getting to work with was the the real prize in that. Um, so I like spent a couple years under the wing of Sia and she was kind of my songwriting mentor. And it was really awesome. I learned a ton. And then I just hit this point where I um, I was enjoying the behind the scenes work, but I almost didn't have my like, why? Like I was, I was out of touch with the 
inspiration. It, it had become not necessarily a job, but like an exercise that I was doing. And so Champion Chills was kind of about moving out of my comfort zone. I started building a modular synthesizer, sometimes from, you know, parts and sometimes just, you know, putting together different modules from different people. And so I just like, I didn't do anything like that before. Aaron did all the production. So Champion Chills was about me being like, oh, I'm going to make like, I'm going to make a synth and I'm going to make a record. And the project was really parallel. I was like, I want the liter- the point of the record is to kind of like force myself to learn how to make a record with this new tool as I kind of make the tool at the same time. And then the the lyrics actually became... I was less attached to the process of that than I ever was. So I just would wake up and write like it was like me doing my calisthenics or brushing my teeth. You know, it'd just be like, oh, this is yoga today. We're going to sit down and write three pages of rhyming verse and we'll make a patch with the synthesizer and we'll add some drums and then we'll record it. And then the first record I did is basically literally that. Like there was no vision going in. I just like wanted to reinvent myself in a way I wanted to, I like really got into being the like superpower of being like, okay, being bad at something. Um, so like I didn't know what I was doing and that really drove the creative process more than, you know, the years where I was kind of like being, you know, held in this kind of expert regard lyrically by people that are just like my musical idols. And that was like a crazy experience, but I almost wanted to get back to, um, get back to the, that kind of naivety that, that I just fell in love with in the first place in terms of like making music. It's like, instead of being like the craziest guitar player, you're like, how does this thing work? And you're like stumbling through and figuring it out. And then that creates the, the output. So so for champion chills it was just literally me trying to reconnect with my original i mean naivety right like just the power of not knowing and learning as you go and the almost like the the dopamine response that comes from like last week i couldn't even play this song that i had written and this week it's under my fingers so can we hear a song sure let's do a song what are you gonna play for us first First, I want to do just a short one that it's kind of untitled, but it's, uh, I, so a lot of the project also just went straight to Instagram. And so I just do these little one minute vignette kind of things. So this is like a pretty good intro to that. Um, but Great. given the, I mean, just given the world right now and given the way that there's so many I mean, there's just so much division in general. Um, I'm today going to play stuff on the guitar because it feels as immediate to me as a as a music making uh, of a music making process as there is. So, so Great. if we can, uh, so here we are with Champion Chills, Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. I see the men a fan, weed and cinnamon. Make a warm compression. Hold on. I played a card wrong. This is going to happen, but. Acetaminophen. Weed and cinnamon. Make a warm compression. Breathe the lemon in. Men and women, friends, brothers, sisters, lovers. Too much under the covers. I just see myself and others. 
Intoxicating late nights, illuminating mornings. I wake up wearing all the same dreams that I was born in. I draw a bath for Matthew, lukewarm the water zone. Peter sprawled across the lawn and Paul is on the giant. Uh, Father, don't forgive me because I do know what I do. If you don't know who the mark is, guess what? The mark is you. My brother's still not speaking and it isn't just to me. It's hard to tell how palpable unspoken trust can be. I'm more afraid to fly than I ever was to die. He's got arrows in his sparrow. He's got marrow in his eyes. Count my sorrows on one finger because one finger's all it takes to turn a second on the trigger to your very last mistake. Do they owe us a living? Of course they do. Of course they do. They owe us a living. Of course they do. Of course they do. They owe us a living. Of course they do. Of course they do. They owe us a living. Of course they fucking do. One of your lyrics, and if I might quote in reference to New York, is moved here for love, but stayed for the snacks. Uh, What (laughs) snacks did you stay in New York for, and what do you miss right now? Oh, man. I mean... (laughs) There's no start or stop to this conversation, but uh, I'm going to just think because I've been out of my neighborhood for a little while. Um, I just want to think in terms of geographically, but there's some classics I would be remiss not to mention. But the the first thing that comes to mind is like uh, what Dennis Snow is doing at D&D. It's like had immediately became my favorite place right when it kind of started i think they're like there's so much creativity going into that place um i mean i don't even know what i'd even call out from there um i mean the fun is amazing but i also feel like the last couple times i went in there they bring out like different variations of stuff the rice paper salad is a is a that that feels like it there's like a i don't know there's there's a lot of snacks there i also the um the in my neighborhood, Suzume is a place that I think is kind of a slept on thing. Do you know that place? I don't. It is. It's hard to describe. They when I went in there, it seemed like there was early on. They had a lot of. I mean, they have a lot of dishes that I understand to be like Hawaiian dishes, like a spamusubi and stuff like that. But then they have they have some ramens that that I really enjoy too. Um, I don't know. I. I can't not talk about little Frankie's the specifically the like charred grilled eggplant thing is my favorite food in the world. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots. I think that lyric was in reference to uh, New York noodle town with the duck, the duck soup that they oh, have. The great NY noodle town. You know, yeah. I uh, drove by it uh, during the pandemic in the hopes that maybe it would be open that I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna risk this. Like, I don't, you know, like early days. And it was so shuttered up on like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. And oh, it was man. So, so sad. Oh man. It's, I mean, that's, yeah, I, this is actually not even to laugh. It's like a, you know, solemn time for that industry in that city, which is like, I mean, not willing to, you know, argue with anybody that it could trade with any food city in the world, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I was sent 
for my birthday uh, from Terrence Tay. Uh, he sent oh, me like a whole yeah t- the TT, um, the the man behind all behind every scenes, but he sent me a bagel setup from Barney Greengrass that was insane. It was like everything from like you know a dozen of their bagels, uh, white fish salad. Um, there's some smoked sturgeon, this like salmon pastrami, and then he also he must he must really like me because he sent me a little pot of the caviar from there too. Ooh, yeah. Uh, Darren, uh, the other co-host of the show, contends that like a Barney Greengrass setup or a Ross and Daughters setup, like, is always the perfect gift, no matter the situation. Like, you could send that in any in any situation, any occurrence, and everyone's going to be like, "That was perfect." I was completely impressed. I mean, I had to have you know, it was a big birthday for me this year, and I was you know, I had it in isolation and. It was the first thing that happened, and I was like, "It's all downhill from here." We're sure we're like, "This, this, this is as good as it would have been if we were all wherever in the desert celebrating." You know, it, it, it like, I mean, I, I cried. I definitely teared up. It was. I can confirm that at least for my birthday this year, it was the perfect gift. I can't really see a time when I wouldn't open that box and not have that smile. So, can we hear another song? Sure. Yes. Why not? I love songs. Let me think which one I want to do. I'm going to play this song that's called California. That's about California. California, California, thank you for your cloying aromas, your beautiful views of royals and lomas who wants to wake up from so lovely a coma after the gold rush, after the gold rush. I know a man who walks in my neighborhood. He made beautiful songs, but he never so much, so much. Came too long after the gold rush. Then he fell in with people you don't trust. Now he can't pay for his own lunch. But I don't judge. Don't judge. At the cafe where I practice my Spanish, she asked me if I had an act we can manage. My mom's name is Janice. She's not why I'm manic. I'm good with a secret. I'm not naming names. But give me 10 minutes and things may have changed. Cala. California, California, thank you for your glory and aromas, your beautiful views of royals and lomas who wants to wake up from so lovely a coma after the gold rush, after the gold rush, hand gripping the wheel on the freeway, young enough to sell, old enough to repay. Last minute flight was a couple hundred each way. I got a memory the star and you I need to replay. I heard you got a new main thing. I heard he shuffles, but he can't swing. The kind of guy to wear shorts to a funeral. But I'ma stay composed like a movie cue. Under the surface, I'm batshit bananas. All last minute chances and flashes of panic. Don't judge. Don't judge. Not too often I say what I really want much. But Cala, 
California, California, thank you for your glowing and aromas, your beautiful views of royals and llamas who wants to wake up from so lovely a coma after the gold rush, after the gold rush. I know that you have a finished EP, but you are holding off on it right now. Um, mm-hmm. As a artist and a creative, you know, who doesn't really have too many options to either share work or perform, what are you thinking about this extended time off and how it relates to your creative process? Um, I... I... A lot of a lot of my decisions about kind of releases lately have been I've been heavily evaluating just kind of what what do you want to get out of music making in general? What's my motivation? I think it's like is that time in my life? I think it's a time you like really, you know, you're just like. I'm pretty aware of the time that I've got, but I've still got a ton of it. But I also like I mean, a lot of a lot of people are in a lot of worse spots to just be like holding back uh, with their, their immediate plans that were either output related or financial or something like that. So for me, I picked up the guitar just a couple years ago. And so that for me is like the thing I'm working on right now to kind of grow myself. And so my musical practice has kind of become a different entity than my like what, how you might track my career or whatever, like my release schedule or that kind of thing. So letting them be separate has actually been really freeing. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm staying busy and writing uh, almost in a way that is quasi therapeutic, but I also think about it more as like conditioning or exploration or research, but that's ongoing. And that's, I just am kind of, yeah, I mean, I've got a, I'm writing all the time and collecting songs and recording and stuff, but I just right now, yeah, you, I think the decks need to be cleared right now for really important messages. Cause this is a extremely pivotal time and, and we do need music in times like this, but I, uh, this record is a, is a highly personal record that just is not address or fit in currently to this, to this landscape, but it's here. I'm going to share it you know, I will share it. I just, I think we've all got to kind of galvanize and get, get behind a real big, big sweeping systemic change. Like we've never really seen certainly in our lifetimes. Um, but I also think we have to stay engaged and stay active. So while I might not be trying to like share or clog people's feed with my observations, um, cause my political observations don't, aren't, I don't, I don't, I'm not the one with the perspective that is, is basically as rooted in reality as it can be. And my kind of, the further afield we get from what we might've called politics or justice, um, you know, my observational work isn't necessarily like going to save anybody's life just yet. So I want to keep that practice open just to stay very human. But in terms of like, putting it out as a commodity, those, you know, those are just kind of two different things. Um, and this way it kind of lets me run a little more freely and without any, um, without any of the pressures or even like 
presumptions on my behalf that might get in my way of like just telling the truth. The evolution of a practice in anyone's career is super interesting because different things motivate us and different things push us forward. How do you determine the new skill that you want to add to it? How does that enter into your world? I think the best way to know what you want is, I mean, you can't get a, you can't do something really hard. And, and I mean that like, like throw yourself at something or do something really difficult kind of in both senses without desire, you know, like you'll kind of know when, you know, when I have a, I have a dear friend who actually is honestly, he's my guitar teacher. He's probably be mad at me for saying this because he doesn't present as like a guitar person or, or a music person, but um, he, he does all this other stuff. He has this like, awesome like Instagram channel with his mom and he's like an amazing photographer and a director and but he also does needlepoint and like he does it really well and he's clearly logged some hours and I'm just like I could not just wake up and force myself to get good at needlepoint but this person is Kevin Hayes is my friend but um you know he got struck by the desire to be really good at needlepoint and then applied whoever he was to that. And then now there's this, you know, there's this, there's all this stuff that he's made or he did like a, he did the cover for like a Dawes record. He's like done a bunch of stuff with needlepoint now. And I'm just like, I don't know how you dream up that that's your idea to do with your net with however many hours of the one life we presumably have. I don't know. I, I, I found out about modular. I kind of literally, you know, for pun intended, was switched on by my friend Dave Grant, who he's an experimental New York City musician originally from Richmond. Um, But he kind of showed me this and I was like, oh, wow, for my purposes, this is a whole different tool. I'm going to go down this path. And it was it was just fun. And then now it's like a fun thing I have in my life. And then with the guitar, I basically I saw John Bryan play a show, maybe like five years ago for the first time, which is my fault. I should have, my life would have been better if I'd seen him 20 years ago or whatever, which I totally could have, but I just slept. I saw him play and I was like, oh my God, like whatever he's doing with harmony, whatever he's doing with like capital M music, um, it's, this is important. And I, I need to do what I can to like learn this language so I can even just hear what he's doing. Not even so I can play what I'm doing, you know? So I had this like hot, heavy, like conversion experience. I was like house sitting for a friend in LA. I went home from that show at Largo. It was like one of his monthly shows at Largo. And then I just like stayed up all night. I wrote like eight or nine kind of verse pieces that night and the sun came up and I just kind of like passed out on the couch. Um, and then I was like, I need to know about this. So I started on the piano and then I wound up at my parents' house for a month in North Carolina because um, I don't remember why I was down there, but I think somebody was kind of needing some help in a health way. But uh, they didn't have a piano because people don't always have pianos, but there's always kind of a guitar. So I was just like, oh, yeah, this is you can do this and like whatever, sit in front of Netflix, be quiet as long as you don't bother the people that are also watching TV or you can like practice all the time. So the accessibility of that makes with like this come to Jesus experience I had at this John Bryan concert, just like drove me to practice 
every minute I could for the whole, um, you know, for the next five years, basically, like I'm not where I'm going, but I've definitely put a lot of time in and I love it and it feels good to me. It doesn't feel like work. Um, so, I mean, I can kind of, I'm not very good at making myself do things I don't want to do, but I am very good at just throwing my whole self at something once it's kind of gotten, given me that itch. So I would just say it's about being, being receptive, like knowing when that has happened and then, and then running towards it. And then hopefully you get lucky and you're, you know, these obsessions are, are healthy ones. Um, you know, whether it's like, you know, obviously stuff like cycling or reading or writing or is, is healthier than just being like, Oh, I'm super obsessed with this one kind of wasabi potato chip, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I can only eat so many before I would get sick. Um, all right. Well, I want to make sure we have time for one more song, but where can people find you hear your records, follow along, uh, et cetera. I am on Instagram as champion chills. Um, that's one word, but the word champion and the word chills together with no spaces. And then that's my project name across every platform, Spotify, iTunes, um, anywhere that, that there's kind of like distributed to streaming, you can find me. And I just put out a single earlier this year. I'm probably going to do an EP by the end of this year, hopefully. Um, and yeah, come say hello. I, I usually share kind of sketches of my process on the Instagram and then the more cooked work you can find in the, in those stores. So. Amazing. Well, we want to thank chef and educator Kevin Mitchell for joining us earlier in the show. And uh, thanks for tuning in to Snacky Tunes. We'll be back with more coverage of the coronavirus and the creation and education around it. Uh, what's the name of the song you're going to play for us? This song I'm going to play is a version of a song that I just actually finished two weeks ago, and it's called The Chords Prayer. Amazing. Uh, Thank you for listening this week. Jimmy, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Don't get me wrong, I look like a palm, but we hit the conflicts, then it gets on. I'm sweet as a yam, but please, if it's hands, then your whole corner starts ripping in gauze. We don't take breathers away for applause. Don't like to spend weekends away from my dogs. A scandalous age, we're handling things like fuck it, we're ripping the bandages off. I am a monster up from bog, a gently recovering bump on a log. I am a kick that goes bumping tonight, the subtlest itch when something ain't right. And I don't know how y'all been feeling lately, but I feel amazing. I've been this crazy. My synesthesia's been really seeping in. Who needs reason when even breathing is a chore and everything is becoming a storm? It is a luxury just to be bored. It is an honor to me to be yours. Play the Lord. Praise the court. Our mother who art in heaven, you taught us all how to save ourselves. Give me strength. Bless my weapon, deliver the tyrant straight to hell. I am not without my flaws, but keeping you safe is my only cause. Sorry, but things have been pushing my buttons lately, and not one of those buttons is pause. Saint ambiguity, you are not new to me. Please don't be naive, child. Don't assume continuity. Experience fluidly. 
address tyranny truthfully. You are the chosen one. Your ascension is soon to be. Only then can we move at ease like two leaves in a cool breeze. They say that pride leaves us open to falls, but I felt so good I ain't noticed it all. You are my home, but with open walls. Oh, to be known, to be so involved. I mean evolved. I mean enthralled. Don't hide who you are. I need it all. I am a shield. So much worse for the wear. But I could be healed if I perched in your hair. So many sins. So little time. I would commit every one with you if you agreed to be mine. Lust, gluttony, sloth, wrath, envy, pride, or greed. I already have everything that I want, but you might be all that I You are all that I need. You are all that I need. You're all that I need. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.